Hello, and thank you so much for listening to the Katie Helper Show, and welcome to the Katie Helper Show. Please rate and review us on iTunes. So excited that I was able to chat with Samuel Moyne. Samuel Moyne is the Henry R. Luce Professor of Jurisprudence and Professor of History at, no big deal, Yale. You can make sure to follow him on Twitter at Samuel Moyen. Uh, his last name is spelled M-O-Y-N. Make sure also you check out his books on Amazon. He's working on a new book, and he's already written some really great books, uh, including The Last Utopia, Human Rights in History. He's also a fellow of the new Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. They're a great think tank. We've had on a bunch of people affiliated with them, including Trita Parsi and uh, Daniel Bessner, a non-resident fellow. Not sure. i got to ask... Uh, Got to ask Samuel if he's a resident fellow or none. Um, not that that matters, obviously. Uh, Samuel's also written for places like The Atlantic, Boston Review, The Chronicle of Higher Education, Commonweal, Descent, The Guardian, The London Review of Books, The Nation, The New Republic, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, and Washington Post. Make sure you become Patreon supporters if you're not already. If you become Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. You'll be able to hear uh, a discussion that I had with Sam, which is really interesting, on something he calls Trump washing and why he thinks that Trump is not a fascist and why he thinks it's a dangerous discussion and dangerous discourse to suggest that he is a fascist. Also on this Patreon-only episode, uh, we talk about other issues and you get to hear me talk about Stephanie Rule's comments about Park Avenue as well as uh, Trump's statements on Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So it's definitely a great Patreon-only episode. Really important discussion with Sam. Uh, again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Katie Halper Show. We are doing a special, unplanned, um, but very important, I would say, uh, live stream. Um, as people probably know, um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg has died. And... Um, I know a lot of people have a lot of thoughts and questions about that. So we are so lucky because um, we're being joined by Samuel Moyne, who is the Henry R. Luce Professor of Jurisprudence and Professor of History at Yale. Um, and uh, really excited. Thank you so much for joining. Oh, thanks for having me, Katie. Yeah, um, just wanted to ask you, I guess, to just kind of jump in. Um, first of all, are you a jurist? Can I call you a jurist? You know, that's a pretty highfalutin word. I went I to law school. But I always try to use it. Is it only All right, for well, Phil, or... this is your chance. All right, it's my chance. I think I've called you that and Rokana that. All right. Um, with varying levels of uh, success. But, um, yeah, can you tell us what, I mean, what this means? Where were you when you discovered this? Were you surprised what your kind of immediate response was to this news about um, our RBG, as she's called? Well, you know... Uh, I, I just watched Donald Trump on Twitter say that she lived an extraordinary life, and that's true. Uh, and she was on the right side of of many things. And uh, you know, for any feminist, she lived a a dream, which was to you know in, engage in a cause and see it come to fruition, and even you know move from advocacy to to kind of. Um, some really important judicial decisions that she authored. On the other hand, her legacy is colored now. Um, she made a bet on her longevity, 
and we all pay the price uh, that she lost it. Uh, it's a, obviously a tragedy for her and her family, but um, it was an avoidable tragedy for the nation that yet another presidential election becomes about the fate of this all-powerful council of elders that we should, you know, uh, think hard about whether we want to keep. Keep as a council or? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, where I'd take this discussion is, um, you know, we have to think about her and her legacy, but we also now have, um, you know, this the, yet another referendum that's supposed to be about our political leaders, but is in fact about who gets to appoint the judges on this particular court. And maybe at some point we should think about why we're doing that. Right. Um, why are we empowering an institution so much that almost we've converted democracy into who gets to be on it? So let's, I want to ask you about those two kind of um, two levels that you brought up. One is her life, right? And, and, and the significance of her as an individual, what this means, the way she, she kind of bet on her own longevity, and then want to get into the larger question of how we should be talking about this. But just for the kind of immediate discussion, um, what were her options? I mean, I think that most people thought that Hillary Clinton was going to win, right? I think is that the logic was that she was going to wait it out. Absolutely. She was going to wait it out and then be replaced um, by uh, President Hillary Clinton. Correct. Um, what would have happened uh, had she retired under President Obama? And what could he have been able to achieve um, had had it happened under his presidency? Because, of course, we saw a lot of gridlock with the with his attempts. No, that's true. Um you know, and and you're absolutely right that you know to to second guess her, uh, especially now that she's gone. You know, the night she died is pretty unseemly. On the yeah. other hand, she was a public figure yeah. and made choices that have affected us all now. Um, she'd want us to. She'd yeah. Okay. Time, good. Right? Well, with that assurance, let's yeah. plow ahead. You know, um, it it would have been an incredible thing to see Hillary Clinton replace Ruth Ginsburg. And of course, most of us thought that's what would happen. Um, on the other hand, she was, um, you know, grievously ill at several points. And um, it, it and she was also elderly. Um, so she could have retired in 2013. You know, that was the moment where she really missed a chance. Um, at that point, it really wasn't predictable that you know, Hillary would, you know, necessarily succeed Barack Obama and she was 80 years old. So um, I, I regard that as a pretty, um, pretty, you know, disastrous mistake in retrospect. The, the thing is, though, anyone in power, you know, uh, wants to preserve it. And, you know, we all think we're going to live forever, you and me, too. So I don't blame her so much as the fact that we've created this situation for ourselves and don't seem to want to do anything to fix it. You know, the dominant, you know, Twitter discourse right now is that we have to depoliticize the Supreme Court, put it back the way it was in some yesteryear when it was neutral. Um, but the fact is, it's always been political. It's always been a policymaking body. And, you know, we fought over who's on it for generations now. 
So until we realize that we need to fix it, you know, you can't really blame those who are, who want to be on it, who get on it for wielding the power that we give them. Right. And what, what kind of, can you just, as a, as a jurist, can you talk about her legacy, her intellectual or um, what's the word? Jurisprudential. Yeah. Jurisprudential. Is that it? Like, yeah, that's a word. Uh, you know, Look, I'm not the, the, a huge expert, but I'll say a few things. Um, you know, she emerged um, as, uh, first of all, she went to law school at a time almost no women did, and she was tenacious in, in, in getting through it. We've seen the movies now. There are multiple, you know, documentaries and, and movies about it. And, you know, she's an icon, not least to my own daughters. And, you know, it's incredible that she, um, you know, opened the, these possibilities um, and really became a model for so many people. Um, she, as, a, as an advocate, she's, she really devised the strategy as, um, that led the Supreme Court before she was on it, decades before she was on it, to say that um, gender discrimination should be treated seriously under the Constitution, in particular under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. Um, before then, racial discrimination had been given what's called heightened scrutiny, and she helped convince them that gender discrimination also was serious enough that the Constitution, you know, cares. And that that was a major achievement. And, and it was really a kind of strategic, um, you know, on her part to figure out how to convince all male justices at that time to make the constitution into something that could protect women. Um, as a justice, she got this incredible opportunity to even um, give more teeth to, you know, protections against gender discrimination under the constitution, most famously in a case that shut down or or seriously altered the Virginia Military Institute, which had been an all-male school. And she um, wrote a decision. It's a classic decision that said that it's unconstitutional for there to be a state-run all-male school. Um, you know, in the later life, she became um, a dissenter. Some of her liberal colleagues, like Stephen Breyer and Elena Kagan, began exploring a strategy of compromising with the right to kind of like make the outcomes less bad. And Ruth Ginsburg, um, you know, in a case like that involves voting rights, um, wrote an, a pretty impressive dissent in another case in which the Ob Obamacare was nearly struck down and part of it was struck down. She wrote a, an incredibly impassioned um, dissent. Uh, so at the end of her life, she became much more, let's say, aggressively liberal in in her rhetoric. She had been a centrist liberal and really, you know, uh, um, a, a radical for women, but not, you know, with respect to, you know, you know, kind of larger social issues for most of her life. Towards the end, she never became a radical, you know, in, in the way you and I might think of it, but she definitely would get rowdy as the court moved right from time to time. And um, in terms of what could have happened uh, 
I honestly, like, did Obama have options? Could he have played harder? Was, were his hands really tied when he was um, uh, trying to uh, get Merrick Garland through? Uh, you know, people, um, you know, people have w wondered if he could have done anything. You know, in the end, it's down to Mitch McConnell, who at that point controlled the Senate and seems impervious to, um, you know, anything other than, you know, pursuing his own power, maybe the power of his party. Um, I'm doubtful. Uh, but, you know, as we know from the beginning, from 2009, Obama always feared himself getting rowdy, going to the people. Right. Um, he, he was not confrontational. Um, and he paid a huge price at several turns. Maybe he, it could have made a difference had he, you know, been uh, uh, at, in a way as nasty a politician as Mitch McConnell has repeatedly shown himself to be. Right. And of course, you know, according to someone like Thomas Frank, he didn't pay the price and Obama wanted that, right? Which is not like some sinister conspiracy theory, just that often right. think of the Dems as being bad at playing hardball, but actually they don't want to be playing it. I think that's right. And, you know, you go back to his selection of Garland, who's actually pretty far right. I mean, right. you know, which is it makes it kind of, you know, an amazing choice. Um, but, uh, you know, he if he thought it was going to be symbolic, he could have chosen someone further left un unless he thought choosing someone who's really quite moderate could get through. Uh, but then it turned out even that kind of compromise uh, you know, didn't spare him a fight. And that's like the story of Obama's life. You know, he compromises and still gets, you know, intransigence from the Republicans right. Right. Uh, and, and, and never learned. Um, but it may just mean that he was pretty much a centrist all along himself and didn't want to go right. left or challenge the Republicans. Right. Like what was there to learn? Right. That's that. That yeah. sounds like a pretty uh, plausible. Yeah way of interpreting it to me um and so what um what's going to happen next what are your predictions um and then we can get into kind of the larger question of of what is to be done both in terms right. of particular nomination but also okay so there's a problem with the way this country is run and with the supreme court so now what well so in the short term a lot on your you know not to no no uh, yeah well, I, I really do want to get to those yes. larger issues because that's what i'm actually you know thinking about i mean yeah. You know, the, in the short term, the, there there are two separate questions. What does Donald Trump do and what does Mitch McConnell do? And the second question also depends on, you know, really, I suppose, Susan Collins uh, and Lisa Murkowski and Mitt Romney. Um, so to start with Donald Trump, you know, I think that this is in a way salvation for him. Um, you know, anyone who's still paying attention to the pandemic is is in a new space. Um, you know, those who are politically active certainly will will be on the edge of their seats for this one um, on left and right. And, you know, Donald Trump will probably nominate someone, but may, you know, profit from um, not seeing that person, you know, confirmed immediately and making it you know, an issue on which he can say the election should turn. And that will have, you know, incalculable 
impact on you know people on the right um, now. You know, Biden is so far to the right himself that it's not you know clear that it it will really motivate that many people. But there may be some who really care so much about having this sixth vote, sixth reactionary vote on on the court now that they're mobilized. Um, you know, it's possible that that Trump will you know, I think stupidly try to collude with McConnell to get the vote to happen before the election. Um, and and that will be very difficult to achieve. It, it depends on whether McConnell wants to do that. Um, and I've been having disputes with friends on online about this um, in the last couple of hours. Um, if McConnell cares principally about his own power, then he cares less about the Supreme Court than losing the Senate. Um, you know, he doesn't care as much about losing the presidency, but losing the Senate means the loss of his own power could mean the loss of his own seat, although that's unlikely. Um, but if he cares, you know, about long term power, he's 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 going to wait. Um, if, on the other hand, he cares about um, the Supreme Court, which it seems like he does, and he recognizes that the Republicans are about to start losing a lot of elections. And this is a golden moment to lock in generational control over the Supreme Court um, in a way that will be very hard for the Democrats to erode. Then this is this is an extraordinary stroke of luck for McConnell. And more than that, he's talked about it in those terms that if there's a vacancy, even in October, he would act. Now, we've seen statements. I mean, strangely, there was a statement from Trump before Trump actually knew that she had died um, to the effect that he will nominate someone. And McConnell also put out a public statement that he will see that nominee through to a vote, not exactly clearly by November 3rd, but certainly by January 20th. So um, it it. You know, it's a fascinating, you know, moment to see what those two will do. And I suppose McConnell's calculus, as I said, will depend, you know, on on these three, you know, senators who he can't perfectly control. Um, you know, Susan Collins has been pretty compliant. She voted for Brett Kavanaugh. She didn't vote for impeachment. Right. Um, on the other hand, she was burned badly. She's got a fight in Maine, et cetera. Um, the other two, Murkowski and Romney, have both said that they don't think that um, a justice should be replaced, either um, in general in the last term, of, last year of a presidential term, um, or in, in this case. So, you know, do they stick to their principles or do they, you know, take a deal? Do they decide that actually this is an extraordinary opportunity for the right? I guess time will tell. Yeah, there are probably some resistance types, right, who, who think that they're going to, who are hoping that they'll take the, this as an opportunity, not for the right, but for kind of the like, I don't know, the sake of the Republic or something. Sure. Um, no, it'll be represented that way. If, yeah. you know, Romney has become, you know, obviously a, a well, hero, even amongst liberals. Yeah. Uh, for, you know, you know, staring reality in the face. Yeah. Um, not hard. And, you know, Murkowski is, 
you know, an interesting figure because she doesn't seem as compliant as, um, as Collins. On the other hand, all of these people have, you know, voted for, you know, economic neoliberalism and endless war for decades. So, you know, we're talking about people who it's like, you know, shades of black, um, but that matters. That could matter in this right. situation. Yeah. You know, there's some speculation that, that, that the smartest thing to do would be to use this as an election, you know, um, theme. And then if, especially if Trump loses to push through a nomination in between the election and January 20th, um, and, you know, especially if the Senate's going to change hands, it's hard to, you know, not to see that happening. Those three as senators might um, keep McConnell from fulfilling his agenda of pushing whoever Trump nominates through. Trump has announced, you know, I think about 40 um, people on a list. And in fact, he added 20 a few days ago. I, you know, it could be someone, I mean, Senator Ted Cruz is on that list. The folks on that list are um, mostly your standard, um, you know, Federalist Society right-wingers, um, some more dodgy than that. And and who do you think the scariest uh, potential picks for, by Trump are? You know, the, the truth is that at, at least when, you know, um, he was working with, you know, Don McGahn, you know, he really just deferred to, you know, the Federalist Society. And he's generally done so on judicial appointments, um, which has meant that, you know, both of his picks, Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh, have been, you know, groomed in the typical way. They went to one of two schools. Uh, they clerked for the Supreme Court themselves, you know, well-trained and so forth. You know, I, I, I believe that it would make sense, especially if the vote is going to be close no matter what, for him to pick someone of that kind. You know, for some of the picks in the lower judiciary, he's he's nominated people almost, you know, without qualification to be a judge. He won't do that for sure. Um, he wants, you know, this pick to be respected. So I don't think we're talking about crazies, I, but I do think we're talking about a sixth vote for a lot of nefarious outcomes, no matter what. Can you see the questions, by the way? Did any uh, any questions strike your fancy? Um, you know, they're mostly comments and they're pretty good ones. Like one. Um, let's see. Uh, one question was, I did, there were some interesting, let's see, Brian Fredericks. Uh, let's see, a big. Uh, Amy Coney Barrett yes. will be Trump's choice that, yeah. you know, that that's, that's, that's not implausible. I mean, I think she came very close in the prior round uh, and that often happens, you know, when when Ginsburg was nominated, everyone thought it would go to Stephen Breyer, who then got it the next time. Right. You know, he had a bad interview with uh, Clinton and uh, yet uh, he was he's on the court now. He's himself up there in years. Um, and then let's see. Um, Sparky says um, Ginsburg and Alito show that people can be close friends, even with significant political differences. It used to be pretty common. Um, 
since Ted Cruz's fellow senators dislike him, if he's nominated for SCOTUS, he may be confirmed just so they can get rid of him. Ooh, we got to make sure we got to somehow make um, Ted Cruz uh, beloved uh, so we can prevent that from happening. You know, it's it's true that that Ginsburg and, and Scalia were were really close and they went to the opera together, together and so right, forth. Yeah. You know, my take is that's um, all part of this, like almost like criminological attitude where we were curious about those who wield power over us. Um, and, you know, it's nice that they got along, but it's yeah, it's is that what we want? Our political discussion to be about right you I know mean, especially we didn't that. vote for these people right yeah i mean i remember when scalia died i wrote something for salon and they gave it like a really annoying title but it was basically about how i wasn't sad that he was dead i wasn't sad he was off the court and um i think he was an odious human being who i believe he actually ruled that that or said or wrote that you the constitution doesn't bar or doesn't prevent or uh prohibit someone from being executed if they were legally represented even if they're innocent um you know um i that may be i mean it, it's very yeah. possible you know he he was a you know an originalist which right. means that you know the eighth amendment you know, barring cruel and unusual punishment, he thought that couldn't include things, you know, that changed morally since the 18th century. Right. Um, and maybe that was one of them. Yeah. Uh, funny guy, though. He seemed very funny. Oh, brilliant and funny. And, you know, I teach the court's opinions uh, to law students, and he's, you know, easily the most readable um, and, in, you know, enjoyable writer. Right the court has seen in, in generations. Uh, who's the, the dumbest? Um, right now? Uh, right now in history, whichever. You know, um, I, I, you know, I find that a hard one um, because it was often thought that Clarence Thomas was an idiot. He never spoke at, right at oral argument. Um, and it was said that his clerks wrote his opinions. I actually think he's brilliant. I mean, I think he has a nefarious political project, right. but he's, um, you know, envisioned some outcomes that the court as a whole has later reached. And a lot of the dismissal of him was, a, you know, a kind of liberal racism. Yeah. Um, and so I, I don't know. I mean, these are all smart people. Um, yeah, that's a scary you know, thing, right? Uh, they, they, they are, you know, we, we watch the court and, and we watch people doing politics in the name of law, and they're very good at what they do. Um, they've sustained this illusion that when they make policy choices, it's the law making them for 200 years now. And, you know, I just think we should emphasize that, um, that's a lie. And, you know, we should make our own political decisions, not shunt it off uh, and, and pretend that they've already been made in some, you know, dusty old piece of parchment. Right. Um, Alito and Kavanaugh, are they really as smart as the other ones? Uh, yeah, they're, really they're, they're smart guys. You know, I mean, I, you know, I don't want to 
I don't, I'm, I have trouble ranking them because right. they, they, you know, are, are good at what they do. Yeah. Um, well-trained and well-groomed and, uh, in, you know, I don't think Alita did, but Kavanaugh certainly prepared to do this from a young age. And, um, you know, if you put your mind to it, you can get good at, at some things. Right. Apparently being a Supreme court justice is one of them. Right. Um, okay. And, uh, so let's talk a little bit about, um, well, first of all, who do you, who do you think Biden would nominate? I think Biden would, um, nominate a, a, you know, liberal of some kind, you know, his, we know that his priors, his proclivities are, you know, centrist. Um, and it's, it's really hard to say. I mean, I would hope he would, as someone who didn't go to Harvard or Yale, kind of revive this old tradition that, you may need to be a lawyer, but you don't need to be a judge and you don't need to be, you know, minted by one of these elite schools to play this role. Um, you know, even in recent days, he's emphasized that he's it's still in a sense an outsider. And some of the recent profiles for, you know, all that you and I might, you know, you know, dunk on him, you know, there, there, he does still have a sense that you know, he's never been respected by Washington elites, um, you know, because of his background and his education. And, you know, I think Able the Supreme Court yeah. was was a better thing, always bad, but a better thing when, you know, there was a range of Americans on it and not just those who have gone to my school. Your school as in someone at Yale? Or? Some, yeah, no, yeah, you know, it, it's currently it's. You know, it's now that actually Ginsburg's death means that there's no one on the court that didn't go to Harvard or, or didn't graduate from Harvard or Yale. She started at Harvard and graduated from Columbia. All the rest, I think it's now 4-4 four, four, Harvard, Yale. Let's see. She graduated right. from, as in she started at Harvard undergrad and did Columbia no, Law? No, no, she, she, she started at Harvard Law, but because... Um, she was married with children and her husband graduated before her and moved to New York. Um, she transferred to Columbia and graduated from there. She stepped down. She took it enough. She took a huge step down. Yeah, But a much better city. Let's be honest. I think that's right. Cambridge versus New York. Yeah. Can't really no, blame her. It's no contest. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. So let's, let's see. Um, also, uh, Biden, uh, as someone who, uh, what, what, what did he help do? Uh, he really, he was uh, pro-bus, anti-busing, because uh, he thought busing was, uh, as he said, this is one of my favorite Biden arguments, that um, it was a rejection of black uh, is beautiful. He, he tried to pretend that the reason he opposed busing was because it was assimilationist. Right. He um, said that not at the time, but more recently. No, he said it at the time. At the time, okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, that's yeah. Quite he said black is beautiful. Like he said, yeah. it's the rejection of yeah. Yeah. Um, he didn't use the, probably the word assimilationist then, but he definitely used that um, the black pride, black is beautiful thing, which is a. You know, the best you can thing. say about Biden is that he seems to conform to what everyone else is saying, right. like the center of the party, and you know, the center of the party for all of its you know defects has moved a fair bit, 
And so he's moving to, you know, the, the million dollar question if he wins, no matter what happens with the Supreme Court is, how is Biden going to govern? And above all, who is he going to appoint right. um, himself to, to various right. positions? You know, Stephen Breyer is not going to be on the court that much longer. And the next president presumably will get to replace him. And, you know, that's going to be on Biden. Um, right. But we've got a big, you know, bump in the road now before any of that can happen. And then what about expanding the court and packing the court? And oh, before then, I just want to share some trivia. Do you sure. know why Rehnquist added golden stripes to his um, robe? It had to do with um, the uh, the, the musical. Yeah, Ayalon. Right. That's right. Yeah. That's right. You know, and he, he I think he was very proud of 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 sporting those gold bars during yeah. Bill Clinton's impeachment. Right. Yeah. Uh, interesting guy. Um, yes. Yes. Big fan of hush puppies. Ah, OK. Well, yeah, that's one thing I puppies, share with yeah. Oh, OK. I thought we were talking about the food. Oh, no, no. He wore the, the, okay. the hush puppy shoes. Yeah. All right. Very um, good. And uh, OK. And so let's talk about expanding the court, packing the court. That's very controversial. People on it is, both it sides is. of the political spectrum have, you know, there's overlap, there's disagreement. It's not quite um, doesn't fall neatly. Right um, along the, the political spectrum. So what what's your hot take? So, you know, basically, you know, court packing was tried by Franklin Roosevelt in 1937. It failed, but most people think it shifted the court kind of indirectly. Um, and it's 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 even though a lot of other, you know, reforms to the Supreme Court have been um, proposed in U.S. history, court packing is like on people's minds anytime the topic comes up. So when, you know, uh, when McConnell acted to deprive uh, the Democrats of their seat, people began to talk about court packing again after 60 years, 70 years. Um, the, the idea was that the court had to be unstolen and that would be done by appointing extra justices once the Democrats were in power. Today, there's a huge spike in court packing talk because if McConnell gets, you know, a second, um, you know, illicit justice appointed, uh, the Democrats, it's thought, have to strike back and, you know, add two of their own or more. Now, it's very divisive for a few reasons. One is that the number of Justices Nine has been stable since the 19th century. Um, and, you know, some people even think it would be unconstitutional to add justices. There's also a risk, if you think par power will change hands, that it will start this escalatory cycle and, you know, soon we'll have hundreds of justices. That's actually happened in Poland. Um, and so some people think it's, you know, um, sort of, you know, would 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 lead to Armageddon. Now, we're already in Armageddon in a right. sense, so That's it's not clear favorite. that that matters that much. You know, my, my take is that... Um, you know, court packing is changes who's on the court, but not the power of the court. And so I think we should consider other approaches to the court that aren't just about getting our friends on it and letting them rule us instead of the right. Um, because I think we should rule ourselves in a democracy. So, you know, some proposals that work that way would include um, what's called jurisdiction stripping. So 
the idea of jurisdiction stripping is that when you pass HR1 or the Green New Deal, you say this is not reviewable in the Supreme Court or the federal judiciary. You, you disallow the courts from the ability to hear cases um, on, on certain topics. There's also a, a proposal to make the justices work by a supermajority rule rather than a majority rule like 6-3 or 7-2. And the idea there is that when something's flagrantly unconstitutional and eight or nine justices can agree that it is, Democrats and Republicans, they can overturn the law. But when not that many agree, then the law stands. Um, and so it's a way and effect of transferring power back to the political branches and especially the Congress. Um, there are other such fixes, but, you know, those are the ones I favor Let, that they're about kind of shifting power away from the court rather than changing who the personnel are on the court. And so how would that be achieved? How quickly could that happen? What are all the. the well, all, all of these process? all of these would require statutes. Um, so to court pack, you'd have to pass a law that expanded the Supreme Court, and then you'd have to nominate and confirm each new justice. Can you say that again? Sorry, you cut out for a second. For court packing, you'd have for to- For court packing, you'd have to first pass a law, um, both houses of Congress, presidential signature, saying that the Supreme Court is now X justices, 11, 13, 100. And then for each vacancy, you'd have to have the president nominate a new judge and confirm that person in the Senate. Um, very laborious. The other, um, you know, um, remedies I discussed also require statutes, laws passed. Um, in the case of jurisdiction stripping, you don't need to pass a new law. You just, whenever you pass a law about something you want, like HR one for democracy or the green new deal or whatever, you just add to that law provisions that, you know, forbid the Supreme Court or the federal judiciary from um, hearing constitutional challenges. Um, now, you know, the court can always say you can't take our power away, you know, but they can also say you can't add justices to the Supreme Court. So all of these proposals to challenge the court can face the obstruction of the court itself. Um, and so like we'd have to get into a lot of detail, like which of these might work better, which would be less easy for the court itself to uh, disallow, um, which might be less risky if the Republicans get back into power. You know, I mentioned that court packing, the risk is that they'll just pack again when they're in power and put their people on. And suddenly we're in like, a situation where every election the Supreme Court expands. Some of those other um, reforms I mentioned seem not to um, have that same risk because if the court is less powerful, then we fight less about it. And we don't have national soul searching and debate about every justice, which is my dream. Like what if we actually talked about policy rather than which lawyers are going to serve on this council of elders to take the place of democracy. Right. Yeah. And you say that as a lawyer, right? I went to law school. Yeah. As a jurist. As a jurist, I, as a jurist, I say that juristocracy is bad. Right. Democracy is good. 
Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, did you that that so many people who are actually who studied the law are so there's they seem to have you guys seem to have a kind of um, tortured relationship with it. Well, no, I mean, uh, most uh, lawyers love the Supreme Court and they love, you know, r rule of the country via the legal profession. But right. no wonder. I mean, it's a you know, that's saying they love ruling them you know, exercising the power to rule themselves. Yeah, I guess leftists, um, I should say. Oh, leftists. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I think leftists have always had a, a serious quandary about um, the legal profession, which has generally been, um, you know, pretty conservative unless you piss it off. Right. And um, wh what is, uh, I want to know your thoughts on, um, Julian Assange. Uh, well, you, I, you know, um, I think that um, the, these, you know, cases uh, of Assange and Snowden are, you know, testaments to an overweening, you know, surveillance and security state, and that. Um, the, you know, one of the amazing things that happened lately, of course, was that that Donald Trump didn't reject pardoning Snowden outright, but said he would think about it. Um, you know, I think that um, if we're interested in the continuities we're talking about before, um, I, I, I think we have to look deeper at the way in which the the you know the uses of state power um have been pretty bad long before donald trump the fascist ever arose and someone like assange you know um is is testament to that you, you may not agree with everything he's done but you know the question you know that we should care about is should he be tried under you know, these uh, under these statutes. Um, and I think the answer is pretty clear. You know, I, I, I think that, you know, WikiLeaks revealed true facts about, you know, um, electoral hijinks, you know, not that the Russians were committing, though they've committed their fair share, but that the Democratic, you know, um, you know, national uh, uh, Democratic Party was 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 engaged in. And um, that wasn't post-truth. It was part of the truth that it was useful for us to know. Um, now, there, there's room for, you know, laws that protect privacy and protect property. Um, and he may have broken some, but, you know, there's also room for, um, you know, transparency and, you know, a, the public right to know. And, and, but above all, I think, you know, the question is, should we get punitive with these guys once we've seen the service they've done for the public? And I just think the answer is clearly no. Yeah. Um, it seems like, I mean, it, it's so mind boggling, although it shouldn't be, I guess, that how little attention the media is paying to this story. Right. And all the people who talk about Trump being an existential threat and being right. a, you know, an enemy to free press, freedom of speech, um, it just it drives me crazy that these same people are OK siding with Pompeo and Trump on this issue when Obama, yeah. who these same 
you know, Mick resistance people love and praise as a nuanced, rational thinker, respecter of the rule of law and the Constitution, why aren't they siding with him, right? Not that he was perfect on this at all, but first of all, they claim he was. And secondly, he did not pursue Assange on this issue. Right. Well, you know, it seems as if the red thread is that they oppose people who challenge their own power. Yeah. Uh, And that's that's the only way you can reconcile. Um, You know, the principles are often noble that are invoked and that's that's there's something to you know celebrate about that but then you demand that they're they're you know they're the people live by them less selectively right yeah also uh, so many of the principles i feel like are often like the, the freakouts are um uh the freakouts are often i think about decorum and you know yeah i think that's fair we're taking off the mask like here i think that's fair i think that's fair on on the other hand i think we should welcome it even when the invocations of principles are opportunistic when people it kind of dawns on people once donald trump has powers we gave prior presidents that the powers themselves are bad you see that to some degree in the war context um where a lot of you know right thinking people say we need fundamental reform to the way we allocate war powers in this country. And the fact that, you know, they supported that allocation when it was George W. Bush or Barack Obama wielding it, and then kind of the scales fall from their eyes when Trump does, you know, it's 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 revealing, but it doesn't mean we shouldn't cultivate allies when we can right. agree that you know, the power itself needs to be challenged. Yeah, totally. Yeah. The ultimate goal is not to own the libs as uh, having. I mean, as satisfying as that is, you know, the the outcomes matter more. Right. Yeah. No, I think it's true. I mean, I think people we all have different roles to play, but people should be invited to uh, apply these principles, um, you know, universally or um, consistently. Someone actually who's watching the show texted me, a friend of mine, um, want to know about major upcoming decisions or issues that could be affected. And also, um, if you could get into Trump's general effect on the federal judiciary, which most people don't know about, probably his most significant actions. Great. Those are both great you know, questions. So, you know, to my knowledge, um, so there are, there are some big effects of Ruth Ginsburg's, uh, you know, tragic passing. Um, one is that there are eight justices, which means that if it's four four, um, there's no decision, um, and that's of particular significance in you know all the cases that come up starting in October when there will certainly be no new justice. The most obvious one is the latest challenge to the American um, the 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 to the Obamacare statute, you know, which was passed so long ago and has been challenged repeatedly and is now being challenged um, because um, it said that zeroing that that making the the penalty or tax that Americans have to pay if they don't get Obamacare um, makes the whole statute unconstitutional. Um, and that's been a closely watched case. It seems like it may come out four four now. I think that means that um, the the lower court ruling out of Texas will stand, which is a bad thing. Um, on the the second question, which is a great one, it's absolutely true that Trump um, 
largely as a result of Don McGahn, you know, which who's again, you know, um, broken with Trump, you know, helped in the Mueller investigation um, and no longer works at the White House, really did an extraordinary job in getting conservative judges, not Supreme Court justices through in cooperation with Mitch McConnell. And so I think, you know, it's fair to say that Trump is the most successful president in the last few decades at stocking the bench. We have a Trumpified judiciary, no matter what happens to Ginsburg's seat on the Supreme Court. And, you know, a lot of Democrats rightly argue that since the Supreme Court hears so few cases relative to the judiciary as a whole, we really ought to prioritize reform of the whole judiciary. It could be possible, for example, to just add lots of judges below the Supreme Court. Um, that was done last time under Jimmy Carter. Um, and, you know, I, I support that, you know, it, um, it's, let's say, pretty ordinary in American history to expand the, the overall size of the judiciary. Um, in this case, you know, Trump has not abused norms. He's just been very focused and very good at filling openings in the judiciary. So, you know, from my druthers, I'd rather keep our, you know, minds on the Supreme Court for two reasons. First, you know, there is a good case that the, the, the Supreme Court is so far right because of all of these hijinks and irregularities. And second, its power is just much greater than the rest of the judiciary um, because it the, has the final word. It, um, you know... It has, because of this idea in American history of judicial supremacy, not just the final word relative to the other courts, but relative to the other branches of government. Um, and, you know, that's why I've been making this case for disempowering the institution. Um, uh, and, and so, you know, it, the questioner is absolutely right, though, that we, we definitely need to care about the short term what happens in October and about the lower courts alongside our, our fears uh, about what will happen to the highest court. And have your politics changed over time? I'm just curious. Um, have your, has your view of the law, have your views on, on the law, on history, on politics, have they changed over time? Um, you know, not as much as my critics think, you know, I, I, I've, uh, I, I have changed my views, um, you know, in, in the area in which I used to work in international affairs. I, I was in the 90s when I worked in the Clinton White House as an intern on the Kosovo Wars, a defender of humanitarian intervention. I believed in it and I've since been, you know, pretty critical of it. But, you know, my basic, you know, priors have been left for a long time you know what's what's different for those of us who are older you know um like me is that the 90s you know the era of the end of history were a hard time to be a young person um as i was then because you know if you drank the kool-aid that we were offered by our teachers and elders um there really wasn't, you know, much prospect of a left renaissance. And that's happened in just in the past few years, which has been an extraordinary thing. So I think younger people um, are, in a sense, lucky. Now they've been driven by 
the, you know, the excesses and outrages of their lived experience after 2008, which I, you know, have, you know, had been cushioned from, but, you know, I'm, I'm really eager to see what those young people are, are going to make of the world. I think they're beyond many of the mythologies that I was offered as, you know, when I was their age and, you know, they're also lucky for that reason. Um, and just want to say, Katie, you should have, uh, Sam on your show often. I agree. Thank you, Sparky, for that comment. Thanks, Sparky. Um, Anytime, obviously. What made you change on the, um, uh, intervention issue? For humanitarian well, so, you know, I, I principally the Iraq war, um, when I saw that all the rationales that we had come up with um, were cynically used by, you know, neoconservatives um, opportunistically. But I also, you know, began to think much more critically about the extraordinary hierarchical power my country enjoys relative to all the others and you know um the the kind of noblesse oblige attitude that young americans were offered when you know i was more impressionable um you know i came to think of as it you know it's self-intolerable um and you know when you see events like we saw this summer you begin to think that if anyone needs a humanitarian intervention it's us yeah so there are two things that I want to say. I'll, I'll say them out loud so that I, in case I forget them, but one is the issue of um, casualties. And then the other is the issue of meritocracy in the Supreme Court. But um, it seems like, um, it, it seems to me like, um, you know, when I remember, like I actually saw this this play embedded that Tim mm. Robbins wrote. That's about okay. The embedded I think media. I, I think I remember hearing yeah. about that. Yeah. And then we turned it into a movie. I helped pro produce. Oh, that. cool. Yeah, in my past in a past life, but mm -hmm. I remember um, Patricia Clarkson, who was right. at the, who came to to the screening. We were interviewing people, and she talked about how much the how much like she realized that the word casualties how. How down? How much that downplays what happens to people, and it's right. true. And I didn't realize that until she said that. And she's like, you yeah. know, a casualty can be someone losing a limb, losing two Correct. limbs, and it's true. I would always be like um, relieved when I would hear about you know this number of deaths um, and this number of only casualties. And it kind of right. reminds me of you know, obviously death is worse. Correct. Um, and uh, although with modern warfare and stuff, it's, you know, not even modern warfare, that song, what is it, Waltzing Matilda, that like really brutal song about coming right. back from Gallipoli and, right. you know, not being able to dance. And uh, uh, but especially now, because of medicine advancing so much, you have people coming back and surviving in ways they couldn't have even then. Um Anyway, but yes, this issue of, you know, people may not be killed, they may be maimed, they may just have PTSD. Right. Um, and and right. from here, and then the populations there, all those yeah. things, plus destabilization. I mean, that's the right. other thing. It's just the economic right. the devastation right. that happens, even when people aren't killed or maimed. Absolutely. Yeah. No one should be, you know, celebrating since, you know, you can't trivialize the residual violence and nonviolent um, consequences of wars. I mean, you can say if if we agree that death is the worst thing, that it's it's extraordinary 
um, how less fatal war is today. You know, in American wars, something like four to six million Vietnamese died um, in in that you know war, and and we're just nowhere near those totals. As you say, we should be very attentive to the way in which what's to get substituted for death is you know other other forms of harm. You know, at the end of the story, the question is, what are the nonviolent forms of harm? So. You know, if you have drones constantly flying overhead or, you know, they could strike and rarely do, um, it's a pretty chilling picture. Right. And, you know, it, it seems as if a lot of folks who care about about making war more humane would like to see something like a globalized American policing. Mm. Now, we know that American policing in America is brutal and violent. Um but, you know, you can ask at home and abroad, what do we want for there to be nonviolent policing or to abolish policing? Um, it doesn't it reflect these hierarchies we, you know, we sustain that we have some people policed and others not. Right. Um, and, you know, to me, surveillance and policing, the kind of thing that got Edward Snowden so upset um, are also chilling forms of domination. And so we can't in our zeal to care about like the worst things on the continuum, you know, death, violent injury, PTSD, forget that like what we're substituting also has its dark side. Right. What we're substituting. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, um, Right. And of course, the in purely kind of self-interested uh, national security uh, terms, it's just, you know, the droning does not exactly make a, a population more friendly. No, no. So, I mean, you know, these strategies, I mean, all of the strategies on the continuum have been self-defeating and worsen the problem they set out to solve. Right. And that's true of the biggest wars, Iraq down the trip, down the continuum to, you know, drones and so forth. So like, it, you know, if we were in charge, we wouldn't be doing any of this because it's counterproductive. Right. But the point is that, you know, we have some large group of people who think, you know, terrorism is a problem. And as long as we conduct American hegemony humanely, we're good people. And that's what I'm saying is false. You right. know, so it, I, I, we can't convince enough people that, like American hegemony and all, all of the acts that have been involved in it um, cause blowback, make things worse, not just for the, you know, them, but for us. Um, and so I think, you know, I'm just trying to focus on people who then say, no, but we've, we've made it more humane. We, right. we, we formed a cause group to lessen the civilian casualties. Um, but let's not talk about the war itself. And, you know, right. That that's that's a moral error. Right. And we should call them on it. Um, going back to the issue of um, I agree, let's call them out. Some, some some we can call out, some we can call in, but the ones that we're not going to get, we got to call them out. That's an interesting calculation. Yeah, uh, I agree you with you. Make, right? it goes back to our earlier discussion about owning people versus recruiting exactly, them. Right. And exactly. compromising with them. Yeah. Thank you, Robin Bennett, for this super sticker. Um, and, and then it also seems um, that there's a um, 
you know, the, the kind of belief in, I, I think there's a difference between admitting when people are smart, like you were doing, um, and then pretending that they're apolitical. So, of course. um, and not what you were not doing, but I just makes me think of how, like, there's a, there's so much faith in the, in the merit, in the system of meritocracy and technocracy and you right. see it applied to to the Supreme Court also, right? Like, That's well, right. these guys are really smart, which is true, but they are also right. ideologues. Correct. Um, and they do, you know, there's this, it's a kind of like, and so many people believe it, even smart people with good politics, they really do believe that there's just something kind of okay and noble about yeah. that happening. And these guys yeah. really know what they're talking about. Yeah. Which they do, but they are also using it, right? That's right. That's right. Achieve certain no, I, look, the, you know, the dream that, that education would entitle people to rule without being self-serving is very old, and it's been constantly right. proved illusory. You know, that's why I think what, this election, for all of its shortcomings, it, is exciting at the very least in that we have two of the, you know, worst educated people. And, you know, they're not the brightest either squaring off against each other. It's not like an intra-Ivy League contest like right. we're used to. Um, and I think that, you know, suggests that people are seeing through more and more, you know, the failure of elite governance. Um, and, you know, I'm on the hook because I'm, you know, I went to some of these schools and now I teach at them. Um, and uh, And yet, you know, I think... Um, I side with those who intuit that, um, you know, the emperors ha have no clothes and we, we need, you know, forms of, of commentary, whether in elite spaces or popular ones that call them out and, you know, suggest that merit as we've defined it is not a real distinction. Merit, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's yeah, it's very seductive and um, it's very easy for people to think that they're just being smart by letting other people be the smartest guys in the room. Right. I mean, it would be different if, um, you know, uh, th they have the goods. And I, I just think it's very important in an age of attack on expertise in science to say, you know, it can't be a totalistic um, skepticism, because there are things that we, you really do need training to know about, you know, notably in, you know, natural science. Um, you know, I don't want either Biden or Trump in charge of nuclear policy. Right. Um, you know, they may have some input, but we need, you know, people dealing with the COVID crisis who have been trained in public health. Right. That said, a lot of policymaking um, is has been about advancing the interests of the few in the name of the good of all, and it's it's proven disastrous in so many cases. And right. that that's what's been bankrupted in you know our experience. So like we we need less expertise, but also to preserve the right expertise in the right places. Right. Yeah. No, I'm not saying I'm not like, obviously, uh, uh, you know, let, let's have a give this guy a shot. Right. Joe, John Doe. What right. do you think about uh, COVID? Right. How would no, you like exactly. to, to exactly. you know, devise a, a, a vaccine? Obviously, there are places for expertise and training, but it's more right. the, the idea that it's an ideology free zone. Yeah. No, of course. 
with and, and that's what you know that really does link to the core of our discussion because you know the central illusion or myth about the supreme court in particular and the law in general is that it's not politics that it that there are some techniques that great jurists have of floating above ideology right and doing something else and you know there's no amount of work that's too much to convince people that that's that's just you know not true and um you know the uh the 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 i think that you know the ruth ginsburg's death is gives us an opportunity either to like double down on supreme court worship or to erode you know this cult that you know has been so central to americans uh you know political beliefs for so long that's what's at stake as i see it and so how would we push in one direction over the other well, you know, it's going to be tough because if if indeed, you know, McConnell and Trump in together succeed in replacing her, um, I think it's almost, you know, um, like un I, I can't imagine that Biden wouldn't be pushed to attempt to court pack. And that will consume a lot of airtime in the next, you know, year or years. Um, so I think it's really about like making principled arguments about strategies of um, getting the less power vested in this institution rather than struggling over it. You know, from from my lifetime, you know, in 1986, I was a teenager when Robert Bork kind of they kicked off the, the era of like intense recrimination over Supreme Court nominees. So that's, you know, 30, 40 years now. Um, in which these psychodramas of Supreme Court appointment have like sucked up the policy space and, you know, all other debates um, for at least a lot of a, a time um, in those decades. And it, 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 if, if instead of getting sucked into them, um, you know, we, we could take a step back and just ask to play a different game uh, namely a democratic game, I think it would be much better off in the long term. Yeah. Um, and um, last thing I want to ask you about was, um, what was the, oh, books to plug. They're asking about your books. So tell, talk about your books. Oh, um, well, I've written some. They're on Amazon. The, the one that came out most recently is um, – called Not Enough, colon, Human Rights in an Unequal World. And it's about um, the way in which human rights haven't been kind of a, a posed a challenge or threat to neoliberalism, but have kind of coexisted with it. And then look for, in about a year for this new book, uh, which is, I think, going to be called something like Humane uh, or Humane War, but the publishers haven't decided yet. Okay, great. Yeah. And definitely follow Sam on Twitter. Um, Absolutely. And then, I have so few followers. Really? We're going to give you that Katie Helper show bump. All right, That's great. We've got to make it happen. Everyone follow Sam. I put... A, a, only a, if you're interested. Only if you're interested, yeah. You're my, oh, why? Um, okay, thank you so much. And I'll be making... I'll be sure to make this into a um, podcast, too, because it's... Been okay, great. Discussion.
I've enjoyed it. I really appreciate the invite and see you next time. I hope. Yeah, definitely come on again. Okay. All right. Have a good night. Hopefully under happier circumstances. Right. Right. Rest Um, in peace. And, and how do you balance? I mean, do you think that Trump will be worse for the world and the country than Biden will be? Yes. Uh, You know, I I think um, the best outcome would be for Biden to win in my view. And then for us to make sure to, both pressure him to the left and make sure that we not Trump wash and scapegoat Trump for our sins and instead like own them and, you know, make sure that Biden is not a a kind of excuse for staring in in the mirror. Right. For both like moral or moral um, preventative long-term reasons, but also just in immediate, in terms of immediate reasons, like you were saying, no one wants to be talked to like they're fascists. Absolutely. To, I, I, absolutely. Yeah. I think that's well put. Yeah. Thank you. Well, um, I'm going to uh, stay on, talk to people. I'm going to play this uh, video. If, if Kelly um, tells me it's copyright safe of, of Trump responding to um, RBG's death. And also uh, I'm going to play the Stephanie rule responding to um, uh, Joe Biden's uh you know, war, uh, Scranton versus Park Avenue statement. So, uh, thank you again so much, Sam. All right. Thanks. See you next time. Bye. Bye. Okay, guys, I will see you guys later. This was fun. And, um, yeah, I think we learned a lot, right? I'll see you guys Sunday night. I'm having on Eugene, um, Perrier, at least Eugene Perrier, to talk about the recent crackdown on Party for Social Lib- Socialism and Lib- Socialism and Liberation (PSL). I'm also going to have uh, so we'll be talking about that and other things like that, and then um, we will also be um, just talking about the news and in- stuff like that in general. So, all right, see you again that Sunday at 7 p.m. Bye, everyone, and thanks again so much to Sam. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Katie Halper Show. And uh, I, as promised at the end of the interview, I do indeed, I do indeed find uh, Waltzing Matilda for you guys, and I also find the Stephanie Rule clip, and I also find Trump on Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And so to have access to that, as well as a really important discussion with Sam about various things, including why Trump is not a fascist and why it's actually dangerous to call him a fascist, go to Patreon. That's patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. If you can't afford the $5 a month, you can just um, just support the show, help make it happen for $1 a month. That's $12 a year. Okay, thank you guys so much. Have a blessed week. I can say that as an atheist, right? Agnostic, really.